Hello, listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we discuss modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature specialist and language person-ish. And I'm Allison. I have a background in Roman archaeology um, and late antique studies. And uh, this episode, we are talking about the mummy. Yeah! (laughs) I'm very excited. I see Julia really likes this movie. I've seen this movie twice, uh, both times because Julia has made me see this movie. Yes, I uh, throw back to uh, the Halcyon days. And by Halcyon, I mean, it was the middle of a pandemic and we were all miserable of uh, New Year's 2020, 2021, um, when Allison and I got together uh, to uh, watch this movie and or I mean, we did. We were doing New Year's Eve, and we watched this movie together because I discovered that Allison had never seen it, and I was fucking horrified. Um, <laughs> and we we specifically timed it so that Rec O'Connell would say, "Here we go again, right at midnight," which, as it turned out, was a prophecy. So uh, there you go, kids. Oh, I <laughs> forgot. I completely forgot that. Yeah, so that was the first time that Allison saw this movie, and the second time, presumably, was when you watched it to record this podcast. Yes, it was. Um, so it's clear that you like this movie. Yeah, I mean, okay, yes, but I guess we we can do right off the top, like, did we like this? Because, like, I have already spoiled that. Yes, yeah. Um, I This movie is, like, it's a fun movie. I wouldn't say it's, like, my favorite movie of all time or anything. I will probably not watch this as many times as Julia has watched this and will continue to watch this. Um, but it's fun and, um, the people are pretty to look at. So. Amen to that. You, you can't really go wrong there. Yeah, I was, so I really like this movie. Um, I was introduced to this movie like pretty young. Um, my stepmother owned it maybe even on VHS. Like I might've watched it for the first time on VHS. Um, but certainly I watched it on, on DVD because my stepmother owned, in fact, the entire, like, trilogy that they did because they did this one and then The Mummy Returns and then they did The Scorpion King. Um, the Scorpion King is a garbage movie. I've only seen it once, but I do remember quite enjoying it uh, <laughs> because it's just, you know, it's a popcorn movie, right? Um, but this movie I have seen a number of times since like if it's on TV on cable or whatever like I will watch it when it's on and I have I have like sought it out a number of times to watch it because like it is kind of the action movie to me um shout out to Twitter user at Kyatic um Anwin who is like a massive mummy stan and has written an incredible like rant about how the mummy is like one of the best movies of all time and also is and incidentally inspired uh a guy at letterboxd to write an incredible review basically saying that like yeah actually like the mummy is like kind of the last great I mean, to quote the review, The Mummy is the last great old school action of action adventure blockbuster. And there has not been like an action flick that is like this really since, I think. Yes. And I I think it's like fair to say that people have tried to kind of replicate 
this genre of movie in the sort of like nostalgia era that we're coming back into of like the 90s and early 2000s but I don't think it's really that successful yeah you know there's been some good action adventure flicks um the recent Tomb Raider got pretty close I would say uh but not as close I think as they like wanted like I think they really wanted to revive the genre and it just didn't quite happen for them and like part of it is because this genre and we're gonna get into this this genre seems to require a certain amount of uncritical glorification of an earlier era of like quote-unquote exploration and adventure that simply cannot be replicated and glorified uncritically in the modern day without being wildly problematic this movie is truly of its time yes Um, but we don't have to get into it right now. We are still talking about how much fun this is. It is a fucking romp. It is an incredibly fun movie to watch. It's hilarious. It is an incredibly quotable movie. I think about fucking, hey, Betty, you're on the wrong side of the river. Like, every day (laughs) of my life. It's truly... And, like, Rachel Weisz and Brandon Fraser and Oded Fair were collectively responsible for my bisexual awakening when I was, like, eight years old or however old I was when I first saw this movie. So, like, it's just eye candy top to bottom. (laughs) It is also worth noting that our friend messaged us saying the exact same thing, that it was, in fact, responsible for their bisexual awakening as well. So this movie, responsible for the bisexual awakening of peoples across the world. Yes, truly. Um, so I guess I should explain to our listeners, uh, those who haven't seen this movie, which like, okay, first of all, if you haven't seen The Mummy 1999, stop listening to the podcast, like fuck listening to our podcast, and go watch the movie instead. <laughs> However, if you have not got two hours to go watch The Mummy or you don't want to or whatever if you're like on a bus right now or something um instead I will summarize for you so The Mummy a 1999 film directed by Stephen Summers and starring Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz uh it is actually a remake of a 1932 I believe film of the same name um, tells the story of Rick O'Connell and Evelyn Carnahan, respectfully, res- respectively, an American expat soldier and a British librarian and antiquities expert whose paths converge in Egypt. Rick, during a conflict in the desert, has found himself in possession of uh, knowledge of the location of Hamanoptera, the Egyptian city of the dead, which is a location of great mystery and also great wealth. However, it is also the site of a lurking supernatural danger. Evelyn, or Evie, comes across a map to this place and a puzzle box, uh, thanks to her brother, which turns out to be a key. However, the map is partially destroyed, and so she has to recruit Rick and brings him, as well as her brother Jonathan, with her on a quest to discover the mysteries of Hamanoptera. Little do they know that their excavations, as well as the careless efforts of a rival group of American treasure hunters, are doomed to unleash an ancient evil. The ancient Egyptian priest Imhotep was entombed in Hamanoptera after being punished extremely harshly for daring to sully the pharaoh's mistress, Anaxunamun. 
Despite the best efforts of the Magi, an ancient order dedicated to protecting the world from Imhotep, uh, Evie reads from the Book of the Dead, which they find at Hamanoptera, and she wakes the mummy of Imhotep. Imhotep absorbs the life force of the hapless Americans, and with the help of Benny, who is a sniveling and cowardly former companion of Rick's, he, Imhotep, brings the terror of the ten plagues down on Egypt as he seeks to enslave everyone and claim Evie as the medium for the resurrection of his lover, Anaxinamun. The film culminates in a confrontation between Rick, Jonathan, and Ardith Bay, a Magi warrior, and Imhotep and his undead forces, who have kidnapped Evie. Evie and Jonathan use their expertise in reading ancient Egyptian to seize control of the mummies while Rick and Ardith hold them off, and Imhotep is ultimately banished back to the afterlife. However, the uh, crew of our protagonists are forced to flee Hamanoptera as it begins to collapse behind them, and they leave behind most of the vast treasure hoard that they found there, instead riding off only with the treasure of their lives. And also, Evie and Rick get to kiss. Um... And that is, that is basically the plot of The Mummy. Uh, I left out a lot of shit there. I'm sure we'll get into some of the details as we go, but those are the broad strokes. So, I think you suggested this earlier, and I think you were right. Um, I think we should start with some historical grounding, because, like, the first thing that happens in this movie is we get, like, a big flashback to, like, Imhotep and Inaxinamun and their adultery, which leads to Imhotep's punishment and um, him being mummified and imprisoned in a sarcophagus while still alive. And, like, the first note that I have in my notes document from watching this is, okay, what fucking period is this supposed to be even? So please enlighten me. <laughs> so you, you predicted what I was about to say. Because the first thing I wanted to go into was just, like, the broad strokes of, like, the historical periods of ancient Egypt. Despite the fact that ancient Egypt sort of, like, exists in our cultural mythos, um, people don't really know some basic stuff. So when people are referring to ancient Egypt, they're largely referring to about a 2,000-year period, starting in what's called the pre-dynastic period all the way to the New Kingdom. I, I know, I basically know that there is an old kingdom and a middle kingdom and a new kingdom. And I know that this is like, I mean, you said this, but I think I, I'd like to reiterate for our listeners that like, this is like a 2000 year span of history. Like there is as much ancient Egypt as there has been from like the time of Jesus till now. Yes, I like how your reference point was Jesus and I was going to say ancient Rome, but you're right. Jesus is a better a better starting point. I mean, I know, but like that is where the <laughs> that's where the thing ticks over is like no, nominally right. is the birth of Jesus. So that's gonna be the like or is it the death of Jesus? I think it's the no, birth it's of the Jesus. Birth of Jesus. Okay. Bro, I don't know. I'm just a Jew. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about making a joke like that, but I decided that maybe I should let you make that joke. No, yeah, thank um, you. Uh, believe me, there will be more Jew jokes to come because I have got some, like, Jewish opinions TM on this film. But we'll get to that. Uh, so, sorry. Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom. Pop off. Yeah. So, um, the period that this encompasses from pre-dynastic to end of the New Kingdom is... Uh, 290, 25 to 1075 BCE. Um, and so this is roughly 5,000 to 3,000 years ago. So again, huge span of time, 
a long time ago. Um, and so there's, in this movie, they're kind of pulling bits and pieces that did actually exist and just like smushing them all together for plot purposes, which is, you know, whatever. Um, the king who um, Imhotep is supposed to serve is Seti I. Seti I did actually exist. He also existed in the time period they said in the movie, uh, 1290 BCE. Um, I actually looked this up because um, Evie makes a really specific reference to like which pharaoh Seti I was. And I was like, is that true? Did they make this shit up? She says he's the second pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, which he was actually. He actually was the second pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. However, she also talks about um, this being, well, okay, we'll get to that. Sorry, I have a, I have a comment about, the, about some atemporality that happens during that exchange that made me mad, but it's more related to another thing. So anyways, go on. Um, so, um, and they say at the beginning of this movie that they're in Thebes. Um, Seti the first tomb is in is actually in Thebes, and Thebes was the capital at various points in in Egyptian history. Now I'm a, a little confused because I saw in two different places that um, Seti either was um, his capital was either in Thebes or in Memphis. I did not bother to go deeper into this because it doesn't matter that much. Um, uh, but in Thebes at this point, they show in the background the pyramids and the sphinx um these are not in thebes thebes is sort of way um down south in the nile um the the pyramids and the sphinx are actually at giza which is really close to cairo um the like modern capital of egypt which is in the nile delta so now we get to imhotep imhotep is two thousand years away from seti um he was a chief advisor to a king called joser D-J-O-S-E-R, um, who was in the pre-dynastic period um, around uh, 2600 BCE. Djoser is actually a relatively important um, pharaoh in Egypt because he built the Step Pyramid, which is the first pyramid in Egypt. Um, Imhotep like, may or may not have been the architect of that. It's kind of unclear what exactly Imhotep did. He seems to have been an important advisor, but also may have done all these different things. Um, he later gets deified as a god of medicine, um, hmm. sort of, I think, during, like, the Greek and Roman period, um, and he's maybe a semi-deity before that. Um, okay, yeah, I was, I was gonna ask if, like, Imhotep is, like, a known name that pops up a bunch of places, or if it's, like, a, a specific guy that we have in the record that got remembered for being a specific guy and it sounds like it's the latter yeah he was a specific guy and he was part of this like relatively important part of like the the development of funerary architecture in ancient egypt which obviously is a pretty big deal because the pyramids are big i was gonna say it's kind of the thing that the egyptians have been known for is funerary architecture like throughout all of history since is like, oh yeah, those guys, they built some dope tombs. Uh. <laughs> and this this is sort of a sidetrack, but I think it's cool. But like how the pyramids sort of came about is that um, before the pyramids, there are these things called mastabas, which is basically just like a sort of rectangular s- structure above the ground. And like under the mastaba would be 
the um the like tomb but what joser did is he just basically built like a series of increasingly smaller mastabas on top of each other so that's why it's called the step pyramid because it's a bunch of steps so that's how they go from like a sort of you know relatively simple tomb to then the great pyramids which are like the huge like triangular things i'm <laughs> yes we know what I, I i i think it's fair to assume that our listeners do know what a pyramid looks like <laughs> I mean, listen, hey, please tweet us if you don't know what a pyramid looks like. I'm sure we could find you a photo. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being a bitch. Well, I was, what I was trying to say was like that they're like flat-sided structures as opposed to like right, the step right. things, which I'm sure people know, but that's like how the development works. Um, yes, yes. But yeah, no, it is, it is important that that development happens because that also differentiates for example the great pyramids of giza from like the step pyramids that we see in like the south american indigenous cultures uh, like south and central america like the inca and the mayans i forgot about those those are those are a totally like different yeah thing all i'm saying is many cultures built step pyramids but i don't think very many cultures got to the flat-sided situation that we see in egypt yeah no Archaeologists also still, like, aren't 100% sure how the pyramids were built. That's still sort of a topic of debate, as far as I'm aware, because... Allison. It's... It was obviously aliens. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Um, not giving due credit to the aliens. Um, I'm sorry, okay. I don't know that how they were built, it must have been the aliens. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I need to, I need to, I, like, for the record, and I feel the need to declare this on the record, I don't actually think that aliens built the pyramid. Obviously, the Egyptians built the pyramids. Like, they just were good at math. And, like, I'm not good at math, so I can't, I simply cannot explain it. But, like, I'm sure that they figured it out. Uh. <laughs> well, clearly. Yeah. Um. Because I, I don't, hot take, I don't think the aliens built the pyramids. So, the Egyptians must have. Yeah. Also, okay, we're gonna come back to this one, but also, fun fact, um, you know who else didn't build the pyramids? The Jews. The Jews had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Is uh, there a conspiracy theory? Oh my god, I no, can't No, but, that's, totally but that's like, that's like one of the stories that, I think that's, that's kind of like an incidental, like, ooh, maybe that's what the, like, Jews were doing when they were slaves in Egypt, was building the pyramids. And it's like, no, slave labor was probably involved, but like, ugh. We're, listen, we're gonna get into the historicity of the Book of Exodus in a little while here we're gonna circle around to this because uh, i i honestly can't wait for that because i don't really know anything about the historicity of the books of exodus um yeah don't worry i will educate you but for now let's carry on talking about the historicity of imhotep um which is apparently like not he has nothing to do with seti the first yeah um, he was a guy yeah. though that's fun he I didn't know he that. was a guy um the other people i wanted to sort of mention um is or in places. Hamanoptera, not a real place. Book of Amun-Ra, not real. Um, and so, and then the the wife of Seti I, who is the girlfriend of um, Imhotep, um, it, so they call her um, Angsunamu. And so I'm pretty sure that they're taking this name from uh, an Egyptian queen called 
Ankesenamu. I'm going to have to redo that. This is a very long name. Ankesenamen. Ankesenamen. Um, and so Ankesenamen is actually uh, peripheral to somebody you may or may not be familiar with, King Tut. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. Okay. So she was the um, sister of King Tut and the child of um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, also somebody you may have heard of. Um, and unfortunately, what gets lost in the whole like King Tut's tomb and everything um, and the weird stuff around King Tut is um, that Akhenaten was kind of a like heretic and threw a bunch of Egyptian, um, traditional Egyptian religious beliefs out the window um, in favor of, like, believing in one particular sun deity. Um, so he's actually a very interesting figure. And then when he dies, um, they sort of go back to the normal, um, traditional Egyptian, um, religious beliefs. Um, so Ankes, I can't say her name. This person, (laughs) um, was probably married to her father, um, yeah the egyptians do be like that and then also her brother um so yeah that's that's who that figure is probably based on so the other big thing that i want to talk about in terms of um the historical aspect is mummies oh yeah because um as the the title of the film states mummies are kind of important (laughs) Yes. So um, a mummy is, uh, as most people know, it's a preservation of the body for the afterlife. Um, It was expensive and usually reserved for the wealthy, although this kind of changes sort of later, like once we get past the sort of traditional ancient Egyptian period, mummification actually goes like all the way into the Roman period. And then we tend to see lots more mummies. Um, During the ancient Egyptian period, it's largely reserved for the wealthy and particularly, um, for the elite. Um, and mummification is really important because the Egyptians had very particular beliefs about the afterlife. Um, and in particular that the, that the body was the home of the soul. So in in order for like the soul to be able to exist in the afterlife, the body still had to exist. Um, Egyptian conceptions of the soul and the afterlife are kind of complicated, but that's like a simplified version. And so this wouldn't, you know, the, the mummification procedure wouldn't just involve like removing all the moisture from the body, but it would also involve like a series of spells and various different rituals, um, again, to, to prepare the body and the soul for the afterlife. Um, so how they would do the mummification is they would place the body in a bunch of salt, um, a particular type of salt called natron, and they would remove all the um, internal organs. Um, and then they would, the salt would like dry out the body. Um, and then the internal organs would be put in these little jars called canopic jars, which do actually appear in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the Americans steal them, which is what causes, they steal Imhotep's canopic jars, which is what causes them to then become the victims of him, like sucking up all of their life juice so that he can have a body that isn't gross again yeah so that's the process of mummification um and then another thing that gets mentioned is in this movie is the book of the dead so the book of the dead is actually a thing that exists it's not actually a book but rather a collection of um 
spells that were sort of necessary for the afterlife. Um, and it was also so like a number of different spells that were collected into papyri. So, you know, instead of books, you know, you'd have a papyrus scroll. Um, and these would be placed in the tomb uh, with the deceased person. Um, and while we've actually collected um, sort of all of the fragments of this text, all of the fragments never appear together. So it, right. it's not, it wasn't necessarily like one thing. It, it sort of changed over time. It wasn't like a book of the dead. Yeah. No. See, okay, here's my like history of the Codex uh, beef with this film. This, the, the Book of the Dead and the Book of Amun-Ra are these like, okay, yeah, they're made of like metal, which is, you know, nominally why they've survived, but like they are in the shape of a codex, which as far as I am aware, had not been invented. Like they used book scrolls. I don't, I, I mean, Allison, maybe you would know better than I, but I don't believe there's any evidence for a bound codex that even had that form in ancient Egypt, in any period, until way the fuck later. Like... There sure isn't. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, maybe they had them and they just disintegrated because that's what happens to organic materials in antiquity. But, like, a lot... There's a reason that a lot of the writing that we have from, exam for, from, for example, the classical period is shit that we dug out of the sands of Egypt. And it's because stuff does tend to survive pretty well in Egypt. So, like... Yeah, there's just no reason to have these books be the shape of a book and not a fuck-off big, like, scroll. Yes. I mean, presumably why they did this is because they're taking the idea of the Book of the Dead and the modern viewer's conception of a book is that it's, like, a, in the form of a codex. Yeah. And also... And also, to be fair, because if it had been a scroll, it would have had to be made of some kind of organic material, almost certainly, in order to be thin enough to be a scroll, and then it just would have disintegrated. Not necessarily. Well, probably, though. I don't know. I guess, I, I, you know, to be fair, actually, a lot of those places were pretty well sealed. Well, that's the thing, right? And it's Egypt is incredibly dry, so that's why we have, for example, like, all the wooden furniture from King Tut's tombs. Um, and also all a bunch of papyrus fragments. So, yeah, yeah they, they wouldn't necessarily have disintegrated. Um, although we can get onto what the tomb looks like later. Um, yeah, should have been a fuck off big scroll, though. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Um, another point on these is they also, um, before they were doing the, the like, scrolls, um, they used to inscribe these spells on coffins, and then before that, on pyramids. So it's like... It's a transition into a book form. Um, yeah. And so my next point that I wanted to get onto is that Europeans are obsessed with mummies. And they've been obsessed with mummies for a long time. Yes. Um, in the sort of, around the 1800s, they used to do these things called mummy unwrapping parties, where they would get a mummy or multiple mummies and some people would unwrap it and then a bunch of people would watch. So that's creepy and weird. Um, and the thing, too, about unwrapping mummies is that it's incredibly destructive because mummy wrappings are not just, like, they're not just bandages. They were also, like, stuck with resin. So you're damaging the body pretty badly when you're unwrapping the mummy. Um, 
And, you know, obviously this is um, incredibly unethical. Um, and uh, I generally sort of do not like um, the treatment of mummies, even in the academic context. I don't really agree with, um, you know, removing these people's bodies from the context that they wanted to be in. Like, the, they did all of this stuff so that they could go to the afterlife and we just came in and destroyed all of that. Um, so to me, that feels like deeply disrespectful. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's completely unethical the way that archaeologists have treated um, mummies and also like tombs and stuff. Um, I don't really think that our pursuit of scientific knowledge is a reason to destroy people's tombs. Like, how would you like it if somebody went and dug up your body and then examined it for science? Especially if you're from a culture that specifically believes that, like, the, like, very careful treatment and preservation of your body is what guarantees your peaceful passage and, and like, time in the afterlife. Like, it's wildly disrespectful, actually. Yeah, and I mean, also aside from that, there's, they often, you know, will display mummified bodies in museums. I also disagree with that. I don't really think it's appropriate to have human remains on display. This doesn't just happen with mummies. Um, when I was yeah. visiting Pompeii inside a museum in Pompeii, they just had a whole, like, cabinet full of people's skulls. Listen, as a person who finds skulls in general skulls in general skeletons more or less in general and mummies in particular extremely bad to look at uh just on like a visceral level i really don't like them they scare the shit out of me um i would be fine if we completely discontinued to display any and all human remains and i never had to see a dead body ever again in my life like thank you I would be fine with that. This is true. We went to the Smithsonian together um, when we were at a conference and Ju Julia refused to go in the room. She's like, I will not enter this room. I was like, I'm not going in the mummy room. It's like, look, I, I get that people find them interesting and that they're here and like, that's great. But I am, if I can possibly avoid it, I'm not going in there. <laughs> I do not wish to see it. Well, in that particular room, something really struck me was there is a, a body of a child and I'm like... Jesus Christ. Oh, God. Like, we're all gawking at the body of this, like, little kid. Um, that's deeply upsetting. Um, so, yeah, that's how I that's how I feel about mummies. Um, another really gross fact is that people used to grind up, grind up mummies uh, for medicine. Um, there's this, there's this scientific, uh, or sorry, Smithsonian um, article that I found. Um where there's a historian who said the question was not should you eat human flesh but what sort of hu human flesh should you eat so that's great just a fun little bit of cannibalism sprinkled in to this episode for flavor yes i will also note that um i just realized this there's a whole lot of um description of indigenous peoples as barbaric for partaking in cannibalism um, but yeah, uh, grinding up mummies for medicine is not cannibalism at all. Yeah. Couldn't possibly be, uh, cannibalism in any way, shape, or form. 
Allison, it's obviously fine because these are weird foreigners and they are old and they've been dead a long time and they're not like us, which means that they're basically not human and so it's fine to eat them. Boy, are the people that they cast in this movie to play the Egyptians real white. They're so white. So the person who plays, um, uh, what's the guy's name? Imhotep? No, nope, or- the other guy. I don't know which other guy. Sorry, this is not helpful. The the the, the, magi? Head of the, the magi. Yeah. Oh, Odin Fair. Yeah, so he's an Israeli actor, but that's the closest they get to somebody who's not European. Yeah, he's he's like the most actually Arab looking guy in the film. And he's not even I mean, he's playing an Egyptian, but like he's not playing one of the ancient Egyptians. They just decided that the ancient Egyptians were white, and it's like, okay, well, Regardless of being like Levantine or or you know Northern Mediterranean or whatever, I can fucking guarantee you that they didn't look like that. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, shockingly, people who live in the Mediterranean in a hot climate do actually have darker skin. <laughs> they do not like look like Northern European peoples. That's not how this works. And that is that embedded idea of, like, these were the powerful people in a powerful nation that was adjacent to, for example, Greece and Rome. So obviously they must have been light-skinned. Like, that is the anti-blackness that comes with, like, this idea of, like, well, maybe they were African, but they're not, like, those Africans. And it's, like, that is that is anti-blackness at work, is what that is. Yes. Like, Racism against, like, Arab people also, aside, there is a certain amount of inherent anti-blackness. But also, this is also wildly racist against Arab people, so, you know. Anyway, so yeah, that's, that is sure that. Um, I have one historical-ish note of my own that I wanted to comment on. Um, and I mean, I, I don't, this is not my area of specialty by any means. Um... So we are talking about approximately 1290 to 1279 was the rule of study the first, according to Wikipedia, which means that this is the period in which the language being spoken is late Egyptian. Um, I don't know anything about like Egyptian linguistics or, or language. Ooh, this is really exciting. Oh, um, Papa. I, I, t- so I actually, I don't, I'm not somebody who like knows that much about linguistics. Like I, you know, have studied ancient Greek and Latin. So I do have like some sense of sort of language families, but Egyptian is its entirely own language family. It's like completely unrelated to any other language. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not a Semitic language. It's not, you know, it's, it's really its own thing. Um, and that is relevant and it is there are some language accuracies in this film. For example, um, Evie at one point mentions um, hieratic or hieratic. I can't remember how it's, I guess it's probably hieratic, which is um, an abbreviated hieroglyphic script that was used by priests. And she mentions it as, as like she's talking about a priestly inscription in the film, which is good. She didn't just say hieroglyphics that would have been an extremely obvious error to anybody who knew the first fucking thing about this. I had to look it up because I don't know the first fucking thing about this, but it does seem to have been the correct like term for the kind of script that she was talking about that was used for 
Egyptian language. Yes. And and so as you can imagine, writing everything in hieroglyphs would have been a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, so hieratic was, yeah, hieratic was used as like longer documents. Whereas um, hieroglyphs are more sort of like, again, you see them inscribed on a lot of things. Um, they're definitely something that was used sort of in that like formal, like permanent context. Um, but yeah, if you're like writing a document about like you need um, 50 cows or something, it's better to use hieratic. Yes. My real gripe with the language in this film is that, first of all, uh, why are the people who have learned ancient Egyptian, presumably by reading it from books, so able to understand what Imhotep is saying if he is speaking ancient Egyptian to them? Like, no fucking way. I don't buy that. As an ancient language scholar, if a Roman walked up to me and started speaking Latin or at like a, an ancient Greek, a fucking, a fucking Athenian from 500 BCE walked up to me and started speaking Greek to me, I would be like, this is all Greek to me and I speak Greek. Like, I can read Greek. I would not know the first fucking thing that was being said to me. I would not know the first fucking thing that was being said to me in Latin. Like, I would not understand what was being said because our modern reconstructions of pronunciation are fake bullshit. Like, we have done our best and they are educated guesses, but like, no. And also, to go from a language that you are literate in to being totally fluent is extremely hard if you have had no immersion and have never heard somebody speak that language before because listening and reading are just like completely different skill sets as far as language acquisition. Like it's, it's just like two different parts of language acquisition and if you have done one without the other, like bullshit, you can jump straight in and be perfectly fluent. Wrong. Bad. I mean, to see, this is this is the problem with with us is that we notice that. Ugh. I suspect that other people wouldn't. But yeah, it it did drive me insane as well. But actually, the thing that was more annoying to me is the fact that Evie just like and uh, Jonathan just like pick up an Egyptian text and just start reading that. Yeah, and the the Egyptologist that the Americans hire as well can just like read fluently. He can translate fluently. I made a note about that as well because like listen. Maybe in the 1920s, when this movie was set, when people still had a lot more really intensive, formal philological training, like from childhood, you would be able to really just translate fluently because you would have the vocabulary and the knowledge necessary to do that. Like I, I took a course last term in Greek composition with James McEwen, who is an incredible scholar of Greek and Latin and an expert in composition and has like, like he's forgotten more Greek and Latin than I've learned in my life. And which to be fair, isn't saying anything very much. I've only been studying Greek and Latin for like six years, five, six years, but still. And like, he can just, first of all, he can compose off the top of his head and he can also just translate off the top of his head, even our shit tier compositions that like didn't make a lot of sense. So I'm not saying that this is a completely impossible skill set, especially for the time and for people who are trained very differently. But Evie is a librarian and like a hobbyist as far as any being an Egyptologist. And the Egyptologist is like presumably more like I didn't I I just I can maybe buy it from him. I struggle to buy it with her because there's no reason for her to have 
had the ability to invest that much time. Anyways, all this to say, being able to translate fluently like that is extremely difficult. You have to spend a lot of time acquiring the language before you would be able to do that. Honestly, I'm not really sure that anybody can do this with ancient Egyptian, um, just because we don't have very much of the text. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing is like, maybe you could do it with Latin and even with Greek, but with something like Egyptian and especially with a language that's, you know, hieroglyphs and when you're dealing with that kind of, like, my understanding is that it is quite hard to decipher hieroglyphs. And, like, you're dealing with inscriptions that, like, even quite well-preserved are presumably at least somewhat, like, you have to, you have to confirm that you know even what you're looking at before you can fucking read it out loud. And here's the other thing, too, is that Egyptians, <laughs> the way things were written is sometimes a text would be written so like the start of the sentence and the end of the sentence like they would be written so that they run into each other yeah so like it's completely written in a different way than you would write um also the way we translated we managed to learn how to translate ancient egyptian is there's the rosetta stone which i'm sure everybody has heard of um and the reason we were able to translate it is because um the rosetta stone has greek demotic and egyptian on it um, and so like demotic is like this in-between language. And so because we have this language that we knew, um, we could translate the, the ancient Egyptian, but that also means like, we don't really have a good sense of like ancient Egyptian vocabulary. Like we have that stone and then I'm not sure the degree to which other, um, philologists have able, have been able to decipher it, but it's not like Greek and Latin where people have continuously been able to speak and read it for the past like 2000 years because um people have like kept up that tradition so okay not to continue to push off talking about the racism in this film i swear to god we'll get to it but uh before we do that i have one more comment on like historicity in this film and it is uh that i we need to talk about the 10 plagues. Yes, I, I for, for reference, um, I was raised atheist. I don't know really anything about the Torah slash Old Testament. Um, I know a little bit about New Testament, like the letters of Paul. That's it. That's my, that's my knowledge. Um, also that whenever I ask, um, uh, people I know who are in religious studies about the age of various um, texts in the uh, Hebrew Bible, they, I always got completely non-committal answers. So, um, which I suspect means we don't really know. I'm sure that they gave you a look like they had felt death uh, coming when you asked them that question. Because like, that was kind of how I felt even thinking about trying to research and talk about this. And I'm like, not even really a religious studies person. Um, Okay, here are my, here's my credentials before I, before I pop off about fucking the history of the Bible. Um, I am Jewish. I know a little bit, I know about the contents of the Torah and like the Hebrew Bible more broadly kind of by osmosis from being a practicing Jew. I have read chunks of the Bible for my own like edification, both spiritual and academic. 
um, and I have done a little bit of study of Jewish and religious history more broadly. I took a course on Second Temple Judaism when I was in undergrad. It was great. It was really interesting. And we talked a little bit about, we talked about our sources, one of which is the Hebrew Bible and the origins of those sources. So here's why I'm talking about this. So in this movie, there's kind of a thing that like, oh, the mummy is going to, at his like mummy curse is the 10 plagues of Egypt, which is not legit. <laughs> so, and here's why. Okay, so first of all, this is the line that, that I think it's Evie says. It's written that if a victim of the punishment that they gave Imhotep should ever arise, he would bring with him the 10 plagues of Egypt. And my brain was immediately like, so when the fuck was this written? Because, first of all, the Hebrew Bible, like, as a text, like, as a whole text, didn't even, at earliest estimate, begin to come together until, like, the 7th century BCE? So who the fuck wrote that the victim of this ancient Egyptian punishment will take the plagues of Egypt with him. Because like either they are proposing that the story of the Exodus predates 1290 and the, the lifetime of Seti the first, or they are proposing that this mummy somewhere along the line, somebody wrote down that if this mummy curse ever comes about, it'll be this thing that was written about after the establishment of this punishment and the rumor of the curse. And the mummy just fucking decided to do it because he thought it was cool. <laughs> See, I like that interpretation. Uh, yeah, uh, I do. But, like, basically, it doesn't make any fucking sense that the implication of the film, which is that, like, it was written when the punishment was established that this will be the curse is like the coming, like the return of the 10 plagues. Like that doesn't make any sense because fun fact, I like, I, I don't really know the composition of our audience. Anybody who knows really anything about the history of the Bible will know this. The story of the Exodus is completely ahistorical. As far as anybody can tell, based on archaeological evidence and documentary evidence from antiquity, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were never enslaved in Egypt. Okay. Yeah, because I do didn't know anything about the historicity of Exodus, so... Yeah. So, fact one, the Jews were not enslaved in Egypt, like, historically. It is a important story... And it is a relevant one, and I think that it reflects a lot of realities about the struggle of the Israelites in the period during which these texts were starting to form. But, like, historically speaking, as best as I can tell from some cursory research on the history of Judaism as a religion, Judaism as, like, a thing in its very earliest form it formed out of Canaanite religion, uh, which and which wouldn't really have happened until at the very earliest after the um, the rebellion. So, the kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah were Canaanite kingdoms, independent. They were conquered by the Assyrians. 
the kingdom of Israel uh, or Samaria rebelled and then was destroyed in the 8th century BCE and the refugees of that kingdom fled to Judah and they kind of merged and that's where we start to see as far as I think anybody really can tell and I mean again this is like Wikipedia I fucking I this is like my vague memories of my early Judaism course plus Wikipedia that is where the emphasis on monotheism starts to emerge, which is the thing that really makes Judaism stand out from other religions if in that area in that time. Judaism, early, early, early Judaism, before it was really Judaism, has a lot in common with all of the other religions in that region. Like, their god was part of the Canaanite pantheon. It just so happened that this was the national god of these area of these people, and in response to some stuff, it seems like they became really fixated on that particular deity, and he became, like, god-god. And, like, out of that, we then start to get sort of the collections of stories. The, there's a couple, you know, there's a bunch of different hypotheses about how exactly the Hebrew Bible was constructed, whether it was a bunch of stories patchworked together, or if it was like one text and then somebody added some stuff to that text and then somebody added some more stuff to that text, and eventually it kind of became like the Pentateuch, the like five books of the Torah, and then eventually all of the rest of the stuff. I will note as well that like I there's a focus in um, our current political climate on the historicity of um, the, the Old Testament, uh, because of the way it's portrayed by evangelical groups, they're like, the Old Testament happened. This is definitely real. Whereas, like, there's this thing called metaphor. Yeah, well, and, and, like, the problem with, with all of that, and, like, the problem with the historicity of, like, the quote-unquote Old Testament from the Christian point of view is that in the, especially in the evangelical point of view, the... Old Testament, and I will continue to use that terminology, um, is essentially a set of prophecies and like like for um, foreshadowing essentially for Jesus. Like the Old Testament is all the shit that happened to set up for the coming of Jesus Christ and the salvation of humanity by the Messiah in the form of the Son of God. So that means that if all that shit was real, then obviously Jesus is for sure for real the Messiah, right? So it's actually them projecting Jesus back onto the Old Testament and therefore needing it to be historical because Jesus is, is historical and they need his his messianess to be historical as well. So they want all of the, like, God stuff in the Old Testament to be historical. But, like... I don't know, certainly like the way that I practice Judaism, I don't need the Old Testament. I don't need the Torah. I will I will swap terminology now because I'm talking about a different text fundamentally and I'm thinking about it differently, you know. Um, I don't need the Torah to be historical, for it to be meaningful and like about God and about the people that I consider myself to belong to and to like be significant and all that shit. Like... Uh, because I don't think that the Torah is telling me something about 
some other historical thing that definitely happened. To me, the Torah is a purely spiritual text, which means that it doesn't need to be historical. Because I, like, I just keep my spirituality separate from my history in that way. It, I think also it's worth noting, I mean, because we already had this discussion about, like, um, the Egyptian invasions of the Levant. Like, it's possible that this is, is reflecting, you know, cultural memories about this sort of conflict in that region because that conflict you know Egyptians were doing stuff in that region several hundred years earlier totally and I mean there probably were like Levantine including Israel and Israelite and Judaic people who were enslaved in Egypt at various times because the Egyptians did conquests and took slaves from all over the place but the exodus as described in the book of Exodus for sure did not fucking happen like it's not at no point were was all the entire body of Israel as a people in Egypt enslaved and then they left Egypt and returned to Israel the place like that's that didn't happen um but this movie to circle back to the mummy <laughs> um this movie insists on the historicity of the book of Exodus. It insists that all of that shit happened, not just because of the 10 plagues, but also when the mummy is threatening to murder Benny, Benny stops, he prevents that from happening by he's pulling out various religious symbols from around his neck and trying different prayers to like banish the undead. And he doesn't get anywhere until he pulls out a star of David and he starts praying in Hebrew. And the mummy says to him, Imhotep says to him, you speak the language of the slaves. That bit was unhinged. Yeah, which is like, okay, so, so what this movie insists is the truth is that not only were the Jews definitely for real enslaved in Egypt and the exodus happened, but implicitly either, like it doesn't actually make any sense either way. Because either the exodus happened and the ten plagues happened, and so the curse of the mummy is the ten plagues, and that is already established when that punishment is inflicted on Imhotep, because the ten plagues have already happened, i.e. the Jews have already left slavery in Egypt, or the Jews are enslaved in Egypt during Imhotep's lifetime, in which case the ten plagues cannot have happened until after his death, presumably, and so it doesn't make any fucking sense for the ten plagues to be the curse of the fucking mummy because that punishment was established before Imhotep's death. The chronology doesn't work out either direction. But also, weren't the ten plagues, like, a punishment by God? Yes. <laughs> so why is this Egyptian king bringing the 10 plagues. Yeah, this fucking, it's not even a, he's not even the fucking Pharaoh that's bringing the 10 plagues. Like, you could argue that the 10 plagues are the responsibility of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, because Pharaoh is the one who refuses, Moses comes to him and he says, let my people go, or like the plagues are going to happen. And Pharaoh says, no, in fairness, Pharaoh says no, because God hardens his heart. It's like a whole thing. But it's not Pharaoh who's bringing the ten plagues. It's this random Egyptian priest who fucked Pharaoh's wife. <laughs> but he's using the ten plagues to punish other people now. Yeah, yeah. 
It doesn't make it, and he's using, like, he's using the power of the plagues to terrorize and enslave. In the Bible, the plagues are a tool of liberation. It's so fucked up. It's really, it's really a twisted version of the thing, and it doesn't make any sense. It relies on a historicization of something that is completely ahistorical, and it doesn't really make any sense anyways. Like, I just, like, like speaking from somebody for whom the story of the Exodus is, like, very, quite personally meaningful, and, like, I take a lot of meaning from, you know, celebrating Passover and all of that shit, like, ugh, offensive. However, as an appreciator of this movie, uh, the imagery slaps. <laughs> like, like they, they do a lot of interesting aesthetic stuff with it, but it doesn't make any sense, and it is r rude. <laughs> but I, I mean, I also understand that, like, Christians also, you know, the, the book of Exodus is in the Old Testament as much as it is in the Torah, like, it's the same text, technically, so, you know, Christian people also, so I can't be like, it's appropriation any more than, like, all of Christianity appropriates the whole Torah all the fucking time, but, like, also sometimes that's just wildly appropriative, too, so, you know. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay. Um, I mean, I feel like that's a nice segue into the other deeply offensive stuff in the movie. Yeah, speaking of shit that's offensive, this is the most racist orientalist piece of shit that we have watched so far, and we watched Gladiator. <laughs> well, the, the thing is with Gladiator is it doesn't actually happen largely um, in North Africa or the Middle East, so... Yeah, though fun fact, the guy who plays the racist Arab stereotype, like Semitic or Arab stereotype as the slave trader in Gladiator is the same guy who plays the incredibly racist Arab stereotype of the warden in this movie. Oh no. Same actor. Oh god. These movies this came out man. in consecutive years and it's the same guy who gets fucking typecast into the same like fat, greedy, slobby, like lying cheating fucking arab like stereotype it is every possible negative stereotype have all just been piled on the head of uh i think his name is omid jalali jalili and like god bless this man and i'm so sorry um he deserves better you know what at least he got paid so yeah good for him <laughs> um yeah, poor guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that was the thing that, like, the, the racism especially hits in the scene where they're, like, on these camels, like, traveling to Habitoptera, and he's, like, eating this, like, bo like, this piece of meat in this really, like, gross way, and they're all looking at him like, ew, this disgusting guy. And they also make comments about, like, how bad he smells and stuff, and it's like, well... Yeah, the Yikes. Jonathan goes on this whole screed about how, uh, camels are disgusting. They smell and they snore and they spit. And then we immediately cut to the warden spitting. Yes, we do. Yeah. Like, oh, great. Just what we needed to fill out our fucking racism bingo in this movie is a direct comparison to a literal animal. A racism bingo. <laughs> yeah, where's the lie? Yep. Mm-hmm. Why... How do you even be that racist? Like, and like, that's the kind of thing 
Like, this is the thing, is there are lines in this movie that are very clearly meant to portray a certain type of period-typical racism that, like, period-typical in terms of the period in which this movie is set, the 1920s. Like, and that shit makes sense. Like, the Americans makes, like, okay, the American characters, other than Rick, are also wild stereotypes. I'll give them that. It's very funny. It is very funny. But, like, I I mean, in fairness, we should point out that this is not the only, like, ethnic stereotype. It's just that the other ethnic stereotype is that Americans are stupid, violent, and, like, angry. Um, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm just saying... I didn't say anything about that. Yeah. There are, there are multiple stereotypes being kicked around in this movie, and some of them are on purpose. And there are times when it's like, okay, you're clearly commenting on some, like, political tension that was happening at the time. But also, there are certain things that are, like, in the direction, like this line with the camel and then cutting to the warden, that, like, that's not a comment on the racism of the 1920s. That's the director being racist. Yeah. Well, it's so intentional. It's just, like, the director was like, we need to do this racist shot. Like, it wasn't even, like, casual racism in the script. It was, like, we're going to set this particular thing up. We're going to go out of our way to set this particular racist thing up. Yeah. And there's also stuff that is, like, okay, there's a lot of, like, out-and-out racist shit. And there's also a lot of somewhat subtler orientalist shit. Because we, we've talked about Orientalism in previous episodes. We talked about it a bit in the Gladiator episode. And I think we talked about it in... I feel like we talked about it in maybe one of our Percy Jackson episodes. I... I can't remember. Possibly. I don't know. I remember... I don't, I don't know. It, it's come up at least one other time. Um, because, unfortunately, Orientalism is an extremely common thread in ancient Mediterranean depictions because the quote-unquote Orient and more specifically like like the Middle East is what Orientalism is about. Um, the, the, and when I say Orientalism, I mean the Orientalism as in the, the cultural and like media studies, like critical media studies uh, uh, vein as theorized about most prominently by Edward Said in his book of the same title, Orientalism, which was published in 1978. Edward Said, icon. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> we, we've definitely mentioned him before, but just let's take a moment to appreciate the scholarship of Edward Said. Yes, I will be tweeting my cache of Edward Said memes when this episode drops. Oh, there's a, there's a, there's an Edward Said meme that I need to contribute. Um, okay. I don't know if you have it or not, but it's, I, it's very favorite. It's very funny. Uh, yes, you will have to, um, you will have to send it to me. Uh, anyways, basically what this theory is, is the idea of the Western depiction of especially the Middle East, but also like Asian and North African societies more generally, that involves a, it's a, it's, it's a theory of discourse, which is to say that it is a theory about the way that 
we create something by talking about it in a certain way. Western culture and Western cultural discourse, so, and by Western I mean European and North American, Western cultural discourse has created the Orient, quote-unquote, as a brutal, violent, backwards, backwater society where they mistreat their women, they are insufferably, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, you know, they love luxury above all else. They're greedy and they are rude and often they are depicted as being kind of dirty and, you know, uncouth. Um, they shout and they fight and they spit, you know, like these are ideas and that they are, um, uh, holy shit, it was right on the tip of my tongue, decadent, that they are, they are decadent, but they are kind of underdeveloped. They are backwards. They are stuck in the past. Um, I will say also as well, there's this, um, it also includes this element of fascination. Like, for example, the idea of a, um, a harem, harem, how do you say that? Harem. 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 Thank you. I was like, yeah. I know how to pronounce this. And yet, um, that is, it, it's almost, there's almost an element of envy to it, right? It's like, oh, you have all of these sexy women avail available to you. Yes. Um, so there is, there is a fetishization, particularly of the decadence of quote-unquote oriental culture um their wealth their power their sexuality but it is paired with a denigration and it creates this extremely static idea of what middle eastern culture is and north african culture is in this case what egyptian culture is that it is all about it is, it is people scrubbling about in the sand under which is buried unimaginable treasure that can only be uncovered by an enterprising European. Yes, and I mean, it is worth noting, too, that it tends to Orientalism um, groups, especially, like, all Arab peoples into one, like, monolith when that's yes. very yeah. much not the case. Yeah. Um, as with, you know, like, you wouldn't... If you called an English person French, they would they would be ready to fight you. They they're like, we're going down now. It's this is the end. Yeah. And so there's it's this idea that like we by by depicting the Middle East in a particular way, we create it a particular way in our own culture. And so there is, you know, like, that's what discourse is. That's how discourse works, is, like, the creation of a thing by by talking about that thing in a certain way. And I'm, like, aggressively simplifying. Rip to anybody who actually understands discursive theory. I only mostly do. I'm doing my best. Go listen to the Witch Please episode on discourse. They do a great Harry Potter podcast, and they fucking actually explain this well. I am not doing a good job right now. Anyways, uh, <laughs> suffice to say, there's just this whole idea of the way that Europeans conceptualize the Middle East. For one, that completely ignores the way that European 
uh, not influence, interference, the way that European interference has shaped the culture and history of the, the Middle East. Also, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous how much particularly heavily Orientalist views seem to ignore the fact that, like, you know, the greatness, the, like, quote-unquote greatness of, of Greek culture, for example, relied very heavily on the ancient Egyptians and the, like, art and architecture and, like, cultural and societal advancements that they had already made. So all I'm saying is shut the fuck up <laughs> to racist people. Um, and this movie has a real Orientalism problem. It is like Orientalist stereotypes top to bottom. And much like the out-and-out -out racism, I think that some of it is on purpose because they are depicting a certain kind of setting and story. Like, again, this movie is a remake of a movie from the 30s. They had to understand to a certain degree that, like, what they were remaking was a story that is set and is about a time when... There were a lot of Europeans and there was a very romantic idea about what European people were doing in the Middle East and what the like archaeologists and explorers of that period were doing in Egypt in particular and why this was like a great and fine thing because like obviously Europeans were entitled to go look at all of this shit and just take it because they were so much more enlightened. And, like, this movie, to some degree, tries a little bit to comment on some of that shit, but only insofar as, like, the American quote-unquote treasure hunters are the bad guys, because obviously Evie, who has genuine and sincere academic and, like, enlightened academic interest in Egypt, um, is doing it right. She is the good, like, white colonialist savior. <laughs> As compared to the bad white colonialists who come to just steal. And it's like, no, she's also stealing. I get that her mother was an Egyptian, but like, she's also stealing. Anyways. And I think it's also noting that Evie is very much like trademark white feminism. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, this whole this whole big deal is made of how she like can't get into um, Bambridge, whatever they're whatever their uh, word is for, um, you know, Oxford and Cambridge scholarship. Um, it, like, their fake institution that is supposed to be Cambridge. Um, and so it's like, oh, but she's really smart and she's really capable and they won't let her in because she's a woman. Um, and then meanwhile, she, yeah, she goes in, does all of this, you know, colonialism um, and steals things. Yeah, and it's fine because she's, because she's good. I mean, this sort of is a tradition in Western scholarship that um, people who were taking apart, especially like tombs in a quote unquote academic context were good as opposed to grave robbers who are bad. And it's like, okay, well, there's this societally acceptable way of grave robbing is essentially yeah. what it is, yeah, right? For sure. Um, it's like, okay, well, you can steal stuff in a certain context. Um yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's a big problem. And I mean, there's some subtler stuff in terms of specific, what I would consider Orientalist or Colonialist imagery in this movie. Like, the whole thing with the like, ooh, horrible live mummification, burying him alive with live with fucking bugs that'll eat his flesh. Like, 
that is big time a colonialist idea to depict the people who used to be here as like savages who did fucked up shit. And obviously it's great that, you know, we like they don't do that anymore. And I mean, it's kind of like it's kind of lampshaded by the fact that the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians have implicitly only done this once because the consequence of doing it is that you will unleash imaginable evil if you actually do this to somebody. But like that's still in there, I think. I, I don't think that lampshading makes it go like lampshading doesn't make it go away. It just hides it. That is the definition of lampshading. Um, the other one that popped out to me was we get a scene where Rick and um, Jonathan are haggling for camels and when they come, like, they turn around and Evie has been, like, off with the women TM and she comes back and she's all, like, sultry and veiled and she has this, like, sheer, like, jeweled veil over her face and she's kind of got one over her hair but it's not fucking covering her hair properly. I'm like, bro, if you're gonna put her in a veil, fucking cover her goddamn hair at least. But they don't. And, like, the women that she's with are all wearing, like, hijabs or burqas. They're, they're properly covered up. And it's like, no fucking Muslim woman would half-ass this this badly, even if she was white. I will say they're not wearing burqas, they're wearing niqabs. Those are two different things. Sorry, I I don't remember. I, I just was like, their faces are covered. I don't remember super well what they were actually wearing. I will note too as well, the only other time you actually see a woman dressed the way Evie is, is you see the sex worker that, what's his name? The British airplane guy is with Winston Winston yes yeah yeah and and yeah that's like a very you mentioned this earlier the idea of the harem and the harem woman is like the like sultry like middle eastern like sex worker who is like you know kind of veiled and you know but like still sort of available to like men it it's that is also an extremely orientalist trope and like not how that worked at all yes another thing a little off topic but i remembered it from earlier is that when they're like mummifying people alive a they're just like slapping some bandages on them but like b like i you know i went over at the beginning of the pro of the podcast mummification was a labor-intensive process for um the the proper conveyance of your spirit to the afterlife. This is not something you do as a punishment. <laughs> this is the opposite of that. So Yeah, and it's they're just like they're just like making shit up about Egypt. In a shocking turn of events. Yeah, which is like okay. So that's a good transition into what I did kind of want to talk about, which is sort of more broader portrayals of Egypt, whether in um, media or in, um, like, whether in, in fictional media or in popular media, is um, this fascination with Egypt as this, like, foreign other culture, like ancient Egypt as this, like, mystical foreign other culture, really in contrast to, you know, how we study, for example, like, the Greeks and the Romans, who... Uh, we sort of conceptualize as very wise and also very like closer to us. Like they're, we are the, the, the inheritors of their culture. Um, and it really is frustrating because there are a number of like scholars who 
play into this. Uh, it drives me absolutely nuts because it's it's they're not particularly interesting academic questions, and they're really again they're sort of um, they're putting an emphasis on this sort of mythos. So I mean, one great example of this is the way we talk about King Tut. People are obsessed with King Tut. I don't get it. They're like spending so much time like talking about the way he died, and it's like this is a waste of academic resources. This is not saying anything about the particular culture of ancient Egypt. And it's weird, this weird fascination with this particular person whose body we've like, really like destroyed in the name of academic investigation. Um, and, you know, there's also the focus on the treasure in, you know, that was found within his tomb, um, and the discovery of the tomb and how like the glorification of that discovery um and also the idea of that discovery having a curse that goes along with it um which really does link back to this movie um but and it's the same thing with you know there's all of this emphasis on tombs and treasure and specific individuals and it's like okay well the this doesn't humanize the egyptian peoples and it doesn't really get at interesting academic questions um, and it just like, it, especially academics who play into this, I think are, um, it's a, it's a failure of their sort of academic like duty. Um, they're deciding to chase questions that have to do with popularity and presenting those questions to the public in a way that is unethical. Um, also, this is a sidetrack. There are friggin' medical journal articles trying to talk about like, King Tut's cause of death. It's like, don't, you're, you're a friggin' doctor. Get out of here. What are you doing? Go deal with something else. This is, no, no stop it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, listen, like, I, I am a fairly firm believer that anything that somebody can be curious about is like an, a valid, like, avenue of academic inquiry because they're, are a lot of academics in the world and like not everybody can do something quote unquote useful and like whatever who gives a shit people should be allowed to research the shit that they're interested in but like not if your research is furthering a flattening of the identity of a culture into some kind of woo-woo shit that doesn't really correspond to what they were actually about like listen Classics as a field would not exist anymore if we were solely out here to, like, only do shit that's quote-unquote useful. I don't want to get into that. I don't even want to open that door, to be honest. But, like, I, I do understand what you mean about, like, people have spent a lot of time on questions, especially about cultures like Egypt, where it's, like, I mean, it kind of comes back to the whole core idea of Orientalism, that we have built up a certain idea of Egypt, of ancient Egypt, in our minds as outsiders to that culture in advance of actually doing the research. And there is a certain element of confirmation bias in the way that Egypt gets researched and then depicted by people, because people see certain depictions of ancient Egypt and they get interested in like, ooh, the treasures of ancient Egypt. And then they decide to, you know, get into Egypt and all they want to research is the fucking treasure. And it's like, 
that's not to say that that happens to everybody and you know many people who are are modern scholars are you know good and even-handed scholars and so on but there are also people who aren't and that there's scholarship that's getting done that isn't good and even-handed scholarship and it's partly because of this like popularizing impulse that tends to result in yeah this this very it's just a furthering of orientalism because it's a recreation and recreation again of a certain image of these people and these places and this time that we have already decided on in advance. I think it's it's also that um, some of the scholarship is really, it's bad um, public humanities. We already have a public humanities problem. There's not a lot of good public humanities work being done. And then people are taking the public humanities attention they have and like furthering this perception of Egypt. But it is interesting because a lot of, some of this um, public scholarship tries to respond and refute um, claims of like, you know, conspiracy theorists. There's been some particular people who have been involved with this, scholars and um, also individuals who are um, a part of the government, the Egyptian government, um, who try to build up their own narrative around how the pyramids were built. And so um, I don't think that's, it's particularly useful to, because the thing is, is that they're still framing it as a mystery. It's just a mystery that doesn't have to do with aliens. And it's like, well, this is, I don't, I don't think that's a, a particularly good way to do public humanities. Yeah, because we do have information, like there is knowledge available, actually. And I think that's, more interesting than just to be like, ooh, we'll simply never know. It's like, well, okay. I mean, go find out. Aren't you a, are you a scholar or aren't you? Well, no, there is scholarship talking about like trying to find stuff out about the pyramids, but it, it's so public humanities regarding Egypt is there's two things they're centered on. It's King Tut and finding out how the pyramids are built. Um, and there's this, so there was this, um, person who used to be the head of the Supreme Council of Antiquities in Egypt, which, yes, it was called the Supreme whatever, which I think is very funny. Um, but this was a, a scholar named Zai Hawass, and he was featured in a number of National Geographic documentaries that I saw a lot when I was little. And the focus of it is on how there, there's a point where they, like, crawl into these like spaces above the the burial chamber in the great pyramid and it's this real focus on how like archaeology is difficult and dangerous and challenging um and that this is the work that needs to be done and it's like most archaeology is not like climbing into weird holes it's not dangerous um again it's not a particularly useful portrayal of what archaeology actually is and the questions we can answer with it yeah, I I mean, I refuse to believe that there is not good public humanities work being done out there. It's just that it doesn't get as much visibility as this kind of weird shit that you're talking about that is, like, not useful. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree. And that's a shame. Um, I mean, I, yeah, like, here's my, I guess here's my, like, call to action for for this, uh, this, this particular podcast. If you, dear listener, know of a cool, like, project about Egypt that is not about 
how to get your ass stuck in a hole in a pyramid. Um, fucking tell us about it and we'll tweet it. <laughs> because, truthfully, and this is the thing, and this is, like, kind of the thing that watching shit like The Mummy makes me want, is, like, more better information about Egypt. Because, like... I enjoy The Mummy, and I find, like, Egyptian antiquity really interesting, but I, I don't know very much about it, because, unfortunately, watching this movie, it's, like, all I can think is, like, I want to want to know more about this, but all I can think watching it is, like, well, this is obviously fake bullshit. Like, it doesn't feel real enough to actually provoke me to curiosity about any given aspect because it's like well obviously this is not how it actually was and there's not enough substance to get me to be like well but what about you know this thing actually like what about this thing for real right so we need to be just like a little closer to what it actually was before it will actually provoke people to the kind of curiosity that one hopes that you know, something like this would. Unfortunately, this is kind of the end point of interest in ancient Egypt, not the beginning. And it's like, okay, well, that's a bummer because like, I, you know, we're not doing this podcast because either of us thinks that media depicting the ancient world should all be educational exactly, but it should at least be constructive to people's interest in the ancient world. And I don't really know that the mummy is. No, I I do not think it is. Um, for example, I think a good example of this is the Book of the Dead um, is actually like an interesting topic in the scholarship. And, you know, you can talk about like funerary practices that are actually quite interesting. You don't really need to mythologize it to make it an interesting topic. But then we, you know, we get focus on it as like, a magical, mysterious text. Um, and it is it is kind of difficult because the way that these texts do get talked about is is by using the word magic, which is has a different meaning in academia than in the in the public scholarship, but um not the public scholarship, but in, in the public. But yeah, you could definitely, you know, do do a documentary about that. It's really interesting. Um but instead we got a lot of stuff about like lost civilizations and breaking into tombs and ooh, mystery and danger. Now I will say actually Egyptian tombs did have booby traps um, because people would try to break into them. People have been robbing tombs as soon as people put fancy stuff in tombs because if there's expensive stuff, people want it. Yes. Like, as it happens, Egyptian tombs did have treasure in them. Uh, it's just that, like, it's not, like, a big mystery of, like, ooh, the treasures of the Egyptian tombs. It's like, no, they put shit in the tombs because they believed that people were going to need it in the afterlife. Like, that's, you know, that's a whole thing. But, like, and, like, I don't even think, I mean, you say, like, a, a documentary. I don't even think there needs to be a fucking documentary. I think there's plenty of space to do fictionalized accounts about, like, magic and rituals of the afterlife and all that shit like there's perfectly interesting stories to tell that are even kind of fantasy fiction like like the way the mummy is like you know magic fucking mummies aren't real i mean the undead kind 
Um, the, the, the... Julie, you heard it here first. All mummies don't exist. Uh, yeah. The Victorians ate all of them, and the ones that we have today are paper mache. Um, the, uh, no. But, like, the kind of, you know, walking fucking mummy that we see in this movie, those are not real. But that doesn't mean that there's no, like, stories about a walking mummy that could be interesting and even edifying to the kind of academic interest that we're talking about that could be informed and thoughtful about the culture whose traditions are being drawn on. The Mummy 1999 is not that. (laughs) No. It is extremely fun. It's very fun to watch. But it is not particularly thoughtful. (laughs) Yes. And while a book that we, books we will get to is required in series um, that concerns ancient Egyptian mythology. So that will be very exciting. Um, Julia, you you haven't read any of them before, have you? No, I have not. Okay. I have not read any of them. So I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see if I if I feel different coming out of those. I mean, I'm sure it will because Rick Riordan is actually very good at the kind of that kind of thought provoking and curiosity provoking use adapted use of material that i'm talking about here like i think he's pretty good at that but yes um you know i guess we'll see and yeah i mean i think i feel like we reached the thesis of this episode do you have any other grand statements to make or shall we do petty comments slash gripes no i feel like we've We've done a lot of grand statements at this point. I'm happy to move on to petty gripes. Okay. Um, here are my, here is my one real petty gripe. Uh, fucking, I just can't help but slightly lose my mind whenever fucking quicksand gets mentioned in a movie. Oh my god, I, I saw, I noticed that. <laughs> Especially in a situation like this because the way that, like, sinking, first of all, the Mythbusters did an episode on this. Quicksand is not real. If it was, the only way that you could do it would involve, like, the upflow of water from underneath into loose sand. And they are in Egypt. It is quite literally dry as the desert. So, no quicksand in Egypt. R.I.P. to Winston getting sucked down in the sand. Yeah, I mean, he was already dead, so... There was also no point. Like, he was already dead. They could have just fucking left him there. Uh, he'd probably have just desiccated. And they could have come back. It's not like he would have rotted. Again, it's Egypt. Um, let's see. What else do I have on my list here? That's my one real gripe. Uh, oh, wait. No, actually. They're all, like, at the very end of the movie. They're they're all, like, oh, but we have to leave the treasure behind. Or, like, Jonathan is, like, oh, the treasure. And it's, like, buddy, if I can come back in three weeks with some dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I get that the city sunk, but most of the shit in that treasure chamber was made of metal and glass and and gemstones anyways. Like, it's just buried. Fucking go dig it up. You're a fucking 1920s, like, tan hat archaeologist tm you dig shit up with no care for how like well preserved the site is all the time just bring some goddamn explosives and go get it if you're that fussed about the fucking treasure i just don't understand like 
I don't know. Like, obviously, as a modern person who gives a shit about antiquities, I wouldn't want him to do that. Like, don't do that. But for the character to be like, oh, the treasure, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I think that the implication of the movie is everything is pretty thoroughly destroyed, but... I guess. Your gripe is yeah, petty. Yeah, my, so. my gripe is petty. Um, and then I have a few, like, positive things that I want to, or, like, interesting things that I want to add. But please pop off if you have anything petty to add. Well, the one petty thing that I noticed is why are there spider webs in a sealed tube? Bro! Where are the, where are the spiders? Do scarabs spin spider webs now? Are the scarabs also spiders? I mean, they're magical scarabs, so I guess. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. The cobwebs make no sense. It's bullshit. It just has to look old and spooky, so they have cobwebs. Yes. Um, I. The other thing, this is incredibly stupid and petty, but, you know, um, Evie gets that, like, little archaeological toolkit. It's got, like, a trowel in it and some, like, chisels and stuff, yeah. which, like, okay, whatever. I guess you're breaking stuff apart. But the brushes, those are paintbrushes. And she uses them to, like, brush off a bunch of sand. It's, like, no, use a broom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, as somebody who has excavated in, like, dry climates, nobody's, unless something is really fucking delicate, you're not using a paintbrush. Um, and not even one of that, like, de- you're only using, the only time people use, like, really delicate stuff like that is often when you're, um, dealing with, um, human remains. Um, other than that, or something really, really delicate, but, like, other than that, you're often just using, like, a hand broom or whatever, or, like, a, a bigger, you know, for paintbrush for painting the walls. Like, that is not an efficient use of your time. That's, Yeah. I, listen, I'm sure that, honestly, I think both of us were so caught up on the fucking racism in this movie to pay too much attention to how bad the, like, archaeological practices and also, like, to quote a Tumblr post that I saw, like, uh, let me, let me see if I can find it. Like, this was the 1920s. The archaeology was mostly drinking and explosions. Like, we both just went in expecting the archaeological practice to be fucking terrible, and that's what we got, and it's fine. Um, I mean, that's honestly saying that there is archaeological practice here. They just kind of, like, open a hole in the ground and jump in. I mean, was that not how they did shit in the 1920s? No, there was a considerable, uh, there was a lot more effort involved okay. in destroying the antiquities. Oh, great, Okay. <laughs> Um, okay, I have a few, like, individual notes. Uh, first of all, every time I see that juicy mummy, all I can think is put it back. Literally just close the sarcophagus. <laughs> like, why would you, why, just close it. Um, second, uh, there's this scene, I, I really only clocked this this time, but there's this scene where they're, like, riding camels, they're, like, racing across the desert on camels, and there's, like, so much shaky cam, and it's fucking not graceful, and, like, you know what? It's a little bit nauseating to watch as a scene because of the aforementioned shaky cam, but that is what riding a camel is like. I have ridden a camel. That's what it's like. Uh, yeah, it's extremely bumpy. Um, it's very chaotic. Third, let me see. Uh, oh, 
the most realistic thing that happens in this movie is when the warden guy, he's, like, prying the fucking scarabs out of the wall, and he pauses to, like, pose in the shape of the carved of, carving of the guy on the wall. And, like, that, that is fucking the truest human impulse, is to, like, see a statue or a carving <laughs> of a person in a weird pose and, like, strike the pose. I, I have gotten in trouble in museums for doing that. I, I have a photo on my phone of um, several people, all of whom, which you know, Julia, I think, um, like recreating a statue of Augustus um, with their, their poses. <laughs> um, are, you, are you done with your comments? I have two more comments. One of them is um, that the CGI in this movie holds up surprisingly okay. Uh, like, the mummy actually still looks pretty good, but also I think it's that they did do a lot with practical effects in this film, and that just always holds up way better. Like, 23 years later, this movie still looks pretty good. Yeah, I miss practical effects. Yeah, me too. Practical effects, like, this was sort of the... Bring them back. The end of practical effects in, like, in sort of action or adventure movies. Um, yeah, well, I mean, maybe not these, but, like, The Lord of the Rings, which came right after this, was really... Well, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. right? Like, this is the sort of end of that, that hating. Yeah. Also, uh, fun fact, they delayed the release of this movie because they didn't want it to come out out at the same time as The Phantom Menace. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to compete with Star Wars. They didn't know what The Phantom Menace was going to be like. This is, this is accurate. All they knew is that it was um, going to be Star Wars, and I would not want to try to compete with Star Wars. No. No. And uh, my my final comment, sorry, I have a lot of shit to say about this movie because I enjoy it. It'll be fast, Julia said. Yes. Before we started this. Yes, I know. Unfortunately, we got into the discourse, TM, um, quite literally. Uh, my favorite moment in this movie is uh, the, the moment when Rick O'Connell invented bisexuality, a.k.a. when he reaches over and lights a fucking match on Ardeth Bay's stubble. <laughs> <laughs> the most ridiculously chaotic bisexual shit I have ever seen on film. And then he uses it to light a stick of dynamite and then he throws it and blows up a bunch of mummies. It's, I just, I skipped through a lot of the action scenes in this viewing because I have seen this movie a bunch of times and I will see it a bunch more times, but like, there's so much great action choreography. There's so much great physical comedy in the action scenes. O'Connell fucking runs out of ammo at one point and just, like, weakly flings his gun at one of the mummies. I just... Wait, no, that's Jonathan. That's Jonathan. Oh, is it Jonathan? Okay. Somebody. Yeah, it's Jonathan, because I, I specifically remember that. It's Because it was very, like, Yeah, Jonathan, somebody, like, like gives up on life and just fucking throws their gun. I just... <sighs> it's a good movie. Yes. Um, so yeah, my main thought through a lot of this movie was this movie should really be called, um, white people make a series of increasingly bad decisions. Oh yeah. Because it's like, there's everything telling them, do not release this mummy. And they keep going. These people come down and tell them, we're not even going to hurt you. Just stop trying to open this tomb. You are going to die. This mummy cannot be killed using actual weapons just stop and they keep going and it's like well 
you guys deserve what you got. <laughs> this is That's all I have to say about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, this is also a big colonialism is like the the colonial power not believing the uh, wisdom of the indigenous people. <laughs> it's like, nope, we know better than you because we are white. And in this case, no, they no, they didn't. This is yeah. It's like no, you're fu- you're fucking idiots. Actually, please pack your scurvy and go home. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode will be on the final book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians series, The Last Olympian. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.